Good morning. You guys can have a seat. Man, man I'm, I'm thankful to be standing here on this stage and take a second just to say that I'm really thankful that that guy is my pastor and, and that I, as a young guy, get the chance and opportunity to do things like this and to be in a ministry where not only just my staff, but man, as I work with students, the parents and the people here in this church support myself and this ministry and Man, it's a blessing. So I just want to say thank you. But you can open up your Bibles, or if you've got a version Bible app, you can open that up. And you can go to Luke chapter 6. That's where we're going to start this morning. Um, we've been in this series, as James said, used. And we've really just been addressing, man, the, the lies and the myths that we can sometimes buy into that tell us, man, I can't be used by God because of this. I have a past, or I've been running, or I'm not talented enough, or all you fill in the blank, and we've been talking about that over several weeks, and this morning's going to be no different. This morning we're going to look at Jesus himself, and we're going to look at this group of men that he chose to be around him. We're going to look at this group of men called the disciples this morning. And, and so here's the deal. When it comes to picking teams, we've all experienced that in some way, shape, or form. Even if it was only for you in elementary school PE where you got picked on dodgeball teams, like we've all at least experienced that. And, and for me, I know growing up, like getting picked on the team that I wanted to be picked on or picking the best team, that was everything. For my small little prideful ego, that meant everything to me to make sure that I was going to be on the team that won. I grew up in a Christian school. There was only three boys and 13 girls. And so if I happened to be the guy that was by myself on a team with like the six girls in our grade that could care less about sports or athletics in any way, shape, or form, it was a really hard day for me that day. I really struggled with that. But man, when it comes to picking a team, man, we pick teams to win. We pick friends that we want to be around because they're close to us and we like them and we have things in common and we enjoy their company. When we pick people to be around us, there's always a purpose behind it. There are whole career paths based on this. If you're a sports fan in the room, then you know that there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes of what we see just on the TV screen when we watch the big games. There are whole careers in sports industry, scouts and GMs and team personnel managers that spend their whole year trying to find the best players possible to make the best team to win the championship. If you are into movies and TV and music, there are casting directors and directors and talent scouts and these people that have made their career trying to put together the best group of people to either break the box office or make the next big TV hit series that rakes in all the awards or top the billboard charts with their group of people that they choose, the cast that they try and bring together. In the business world, there's headhunters and recruiters that spend their time going out and trying to find the best talent in the business world, the most educated and the highest earners and the people that they can bring to their company to help the bottom line and to keep them moving forward. We all experience this idea of picking teams as something that's very woven in to our culture. You know, if, if I'm here on Sunday and somebody forced me to pick a bench press team and I had James Griffin and Zach Morgan and those were my two options... I'm not going to finish that because you guys obviously know I don't, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but man, picking a team, we pick the best. We pick to win. I would pick one of those two obvious choices so that I could win that bench press competition. Zach wanted me to clarify that it would be him, but we obviously know that is totally untrue. Man, we pick teams to win. So here's the deal. Jesus himself comes down on this earth. He begins his earthly ministry and he picks a team. And here's the deal. Jesus' mission on this earth was not to win a championship. It wasn't to top the billboards. It wasn't to break the box office. It wasn't to have a bigger quarter than the last one. Jesus' mission when he was on this earth, it's on the screen, Luke 19.10. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
Jesus came down to this earth sent by God to wrap himself in flesh, to live a perfect life without sin because you and I were full of sin, to eventually be taken and falsely accused and to suffer a crucifixion, one of the worst punishments you could suffer, to die on the cross for our sins and to raise from the dead so that you and I could have a restored relationship. We could have a chance to be restored to our right relationship with God. That is way more important than a championship or topping the billboards or any other reason that we would pick a team here on this earth. So you would think that Jesus himself, who knows all of us, who knows the number of hair on our heads, who knows everything about everyone, who's coming down for the most important mission that he could ever fulfill, you would think that when he picks his team, it is going to be the best. It is going to be the A team. It is going to be the team far beyond any team that's ever been put on the planet Earth. Like he is coming for the best because he's got an important mission to accomplish. And so these 12 men, the disciples, the apostles, the ones that he chooses, they're going to be it. And the first thing that we're going to see this morning is that God chooses the disciples on purpose. When God chooses his disciples, he does it very intentionally and on purpose. There are four accounts in the New Testament that lay out the 12 names of the disciples of the apostles. Now, there was more than 12. At one point in Scripture, it says that Jesus sends out 70 disciples. But at, at the end of the day, Jesus chose 12 to be in his inner circle. The ones that would be closest to him, that would walk with him, that would do ministry right next to him while he was here on this earth. Those four accounts, you can find it in Matthew 10, 2 through 4. Mark 3, 16 through 19. Luke 6, 14 through 16. And then Acts 1. 13. That's the four accounts of the names of the 12 disciples or apostles. We're going to look at Luke 6 this morning for, for our purposes. So Luke 6, we're going to look at this together. It's going to be on the screen. Verses 12 through 16. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who he called the Zealot, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. So here's the deal. It says that Jesus went out and he prayed all night. And, and when the Bible says that, there were very big junctures in Jesus' ministry here on this earth where he would go out and he would pray. And when it says all night, it doesn't just mean he went out and said, God, please help me pick the right guys. Amen. Bible scholars believe that that would mean he would get out to the mountain where he was praying at about 7 o'clock in the evening, and he would not stop praying until about 6 in the morning when the sun rose. Jesus spent all night laboring in prayer, talking to God the Father to make this decision, to pick these 12 men that would be around him. This was done on purpose. So, like I said, it would beg to, for us to understand and to think that, you know what, as Jesus prays like this, the 12 men he's going to pick, they're going to be the best. They are going to be the brightest. They are going to be the ones that help him fulfill this incredible mission he's on. And, and, and that's the same way that we pick. When you look at scouts or when you look at talent scouts or casting directors or all those things we talked about, man, they go and find the most information they can about somebody to make the right decision. And if anybody knew more than anyone about these disciples, it was Jesus. So those men, their name are going to be up on the screen, and we're going to have them. So let's just look. We're just going to talk about some of these men and kind of learn a little bit about them, try and get some insight on what Jesus was thinking as he picked his team. All of these lists, and you can find in the four accounts, they pretty much are listed in the same order. There's a little bit of variance between some of them, but here's the thing. They usually are in pretty much three groups. 
4, 4, and 4, and kind of how they're mentioned and how they're paired together and the stories that they appear in. The first four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they were all Galilean fishermen. And, and, and their story goes like this. Um, Jesus is preaching to a huge crowd on the Sea of Galilee on the shore. And the people are pressing in and pressing in. There's more people coming to the point where they push Jesus pretty much to the shoreline. And so Jesus decides to get into a boat and push out in the water so he can continue to teach to everyone. But here's the thing. When he does that, it wasn't an accident which boat he got in. So he gets in Peter's boat, who was Simon and Andrew. Peter and Andrew are brothers. He gets in their boat, he pushes out, he teaches, and then they go fishing. Back then in the Sea of Galilee, it was better to fish at night in shallow water because it was cooler and the fish would come up, and that's when they would normally catch. So they fish all night long and nothing. They can't catch a thing. So in the heat of the day, as the sun comes up, and when it's a bad time to fish, Jesus has them go out further, which is a worse place to fish, more deep water, hotter. It's, it's an impossible time to fish, and Jesus says, throw out your nets. They do. They bring in more fish than they can even carry in their nets. And Jesus says, I want to make you fishers of men. Follow me. And Andrew and Peter drop their nets and they go. They come along, James and John, who are also brothers, who are also Galilean fishermen, who Peter and Andrew would have known well. And Jesus says, follow me. And they leave their father and his servants in their nets and they go. Those are the first four disciples Jesus called. Three of those are the closest disciples to Jesus. If you read through the scriptures and the accounts of Jesus walking on this earth in the, in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John were the three closest disciples to Jesus. They were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were there with Jesus, and he asked them to come pray with him many times. They were the one, G, Peter's the one that stepped out and took a step on the water as Jesus was walking on water. These were the ones that were closest. John is the beloved disciple who Jesus loved dearly. And Andrew was also a part of that group and was often found with them. But here's the thing about Galilean fishermen. That all sounds good, but Galilean fishermen were nobodies. Galileans were seen as second-rate citizens, as nobodies, as common folk who really were uneducated and really had nothing to offer. That's why a lot of them just did trades such as fishing and, and hard labor. They were fishermen, which was a rough trade in and of itself, and so some of those characters were a little rough around the edges anyway. Peter is a great example of that. Jesus calls Peter, and Peter had this problem that I often suffer from and I think some of you can identify with. Peter's mouth operated in high gear, but his brain stayed in neutral all the time. Like his mouth was always going 100 miles an hour and his brain was dead still. And a lot of times he got himself in trouble. Jesus would turn and rebuke Peter to his face for saying certain things. Peter was the one that denied Jesus three times at the cross, very forcefully, very strongly. The third time that somebody asked him if he knew Jesus, I mean, it, it enraged him how he denied Jesus. Peter had a lot of trouble with going too far and being the first one in, but oftentimes he was also the very first one out. He stepped out of the boat to have faith in Jesus. Jesus says, come, you can walk to me. He takes a step and he drops into the water. Peter had a lot of issues. He was boisterous. He was loud. He was brash. That was one of Jesus' closest disciples. That was the one that Jesus changed his name. And we're going to see some more about Peter in a little bit. Bartholomew and Thomas are two other disciples that are mentioned, and they're often mentioned together. Now, Bartholomew is also called Nathaniel, and he's an example to us, man, of somebody just coming and loving Jesus right away. Bartholomew knew the scriptures. He loved the scriptures. We see in John, when Philip comes and invites Bartholomew to follow Jesus, Bartholomew says, this is the one that Moses spoke of. Bartholomew knew of the Messiah. He knew the scriptures. When he met Jesus, he 
quickly acknowledged Jesus to be the Messiah, which many Jewish people were not doing. So Bartholomew comes and he just, he's in. He believes in Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah and he's ready to follow him. Then we've got Thomas who, if you ever heard the phrase doubting Thomas, that's where it comes from. Thomas, though he was a committed disciple of Jesus, often struggled with doubt. He often struggled with just being a pessimist and always seeing the dark side of things. Thomas is the disciple that after Jesus died and he was resurrected, Jesus comes and he sees the disciples and Thomas was not with them. And so the disciples come to Thomas and they're all excited. And they're like, Jesus is alive. He's here. We saw him. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe any of you until I touch the nail wounds in his hand. I mean, these are the men that walked with Jesus. If anybody knew that Jesus was back and that it was really him, it would have been those disciples. But Thomas didn't believe him. He often struggled with doubt. And then this is probably my favorite pairing. And I, I'm just telling you, if this isn't a testament to the grace of God, and this is an example of where we're going this morning, what we're talking about, then, then I really don't know what will be. You've got Matthew. Now here's Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. And, and, and tax collectors were the most hated in the Jewish culture because here's what tax collectors is. There was two kinds. There was the Gabbai, and they collected taxes like income taxes and property taxes. They were very fixed and set. And then there was the Mokis, which that's what Matthew was. So Matthew ran this tax booth for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was ruling at that point in time. They were oppressing the Jewish people, making them pay unfair taxes, and, and basically keeping their thumb on the Jewish people. And so the Mokis were Jewish men that would take over a tax booth, and they would tax things like imports and exports, and so the taxes were very unregulated. Those men oftentimes would charge people three and four times what the actual tax was, and they would keep most of that for themselves. They had worked out a deal with the Roman Empire that if they would collect more tax than they deserved and give the Romans a little piece of that, that they could keep the rest for themselves. Matthew was very wealthy, but he gained his wealth off the backs of his fellow Jewish countrymen who, who he was supposed to be supporting and a part of, and really he was helping the Roman Empire continue to oppress the Jewish people. Matthew was despised. When, when Jesus comes and he sees Matthew at his tax booth and he says, Matthew, come and follow me. Matthew gets up and Matthew's so excited, he's like, this is awesome, I'm gonna throw a party. Matthew throws a party and the people that show up are publicans and sinners and the outcasts of Jewish society. Because here's the deal, Matthew didn't have any other friends. Those are the only people that would talk to Matthew. And so the Pharisees look at Jesus in this party and they go, what is he doing? Why is he with these people? Why is he with Matthew and why is he with the rest of his friends? And then you've got Simon the Zealot. Now, Zealots were a political group back in the day that despised the Roman Empire. Their goal was to overthrow the rule of the Roman Empire. They were absolutely 100% against anybody being in authority over them except for God himself. They believed only God had the authority to do that. So they would go and they would stage very public assassinations. They would stage things that we would probably maybe even consider at this time like acts of terrorism against the Roman Empire to strike fear in their hearts and to try and do their best to cause enough unrest to overthrow them. They were also called the Sicarii, which meant dagger men. They carried these small hooked daggers in their cloaks and they would go up to Roman guards and Roman officials in the public squares. They would stab them right in between the ribs and pull through and it would pierce their heart and kill them. These men hated the Romans. But here's the thing. If there was one person on the planet they hated more than the Romans, 
It was Jewish tax collectors. They were seen as traitors. I can't imagine that first meeting where Matthew walks in the room and sees Simon for the first time, and he's like, oh, hey, Jesus, can I talk to you? Pulls Jesus aside, hey, I'm in and all. Like, we're, we're cool, but do you know him? Like, have you... I don't know that he's going to, you know, and Simon's showing his dagger out of his cloak, like, while he's talking to Jesus, like, Jesus is turning around, like, give it to me, Simon, you know. <laughs> These are the men that Jesus chooses to be his disciples. These are the men that Jesus calls to walk and do ministry on this earth with him. Simon and Matthew and Peter, who's bold and brash and talks way too much and, and way out there. Matthew, who's a Jewish tax collector who is un faithfully collected all this money that really oppresses his people, Simon, who is vehemently against and, and because here's the thing about Simon too, to be called a zealot, like you don't get that nickname just because you went to a club meeting once. Like he was entrenched in that party and entrenched in what they were doing. These are the men that Jesus calls to walk around him. And here's the deal. These men were not the A-team. These men were not the best. This was not the varsity. These guys only make the JV squad if nobody else tries out. Like these are not the guys that we would picture Jesus picking to fulfill such a great mission. Such an incredible call on the lives of these men. These are not the guys that we think Jesus would pick. But here's the deal. These are the men Jesus called and that these are the men that he walked with. These are the men that Jesus traveled with. These are the men that Jesus stayed with. These are the men that watched Jesus perform miracles. These are the men that heard the Sermon on the Mount out of Jesus' very mouth. These were the men that watched the feeding of the 5,000. These were the men that Jesus empowered to go out and heal people and to go out and preach the gospel to people and to go out and perform miracles to testify to who God was and who Jesus was. These are the men that laughed with Jesus. These are the men that cried with Jesus. These are the men that Jesus got on his hands and knees and washed their feet. They were not the A-team, but these were the men Jesus chose. These were the men that Jesus desired. And, and I often wonder, I mean, these are the men that, that in Acts 14, 13, they were called uneducated and common men. But these were also the men in Acts that started this movement of Christianity that Jesus left to carry on the gospel and to carry out the mission and to begin Christianity in the church. These were the men that Acts 17, 6, they say, these men are turning the world upside down. These very same men that have all these issues and all these problems, and yet this is who Jesus chooses. It really raised a question in my heart as I was studying and thinking about it. I'm like, what would I, what would I think Jesus' A-team should have been? I don't want to go as far to say if I was Jesus, what would, I, I would never say that, but what would I pick for Jesus as his A-team if I was asked or if I thought of it? And in my head, I'm thinking, you know what? First of all, he needs money to fund his mission, so he needs somebody with wealth. But not like Matthew, because Matthew's wealth was gained from Jewish people. People hated him. He gained it dishonestly. So Jesus would need somebody that was very honest, hard worker, that had earned a good living for himself to support his ministry. Jesus would want influence. So people that had influence and and a social circle that people walked in. And if you know anything about any of those, Galileans were seen as second-rate citizens, so nobody paid any attention to them. Matthew only was friends with the town sinners, the town drunk, the outcasts of society. So Jesus didn't pick a very good team when it came to influence. We would think that they needed to be scholars and know the Bible inside and out. But man, the ones that knew the Bible the best, those were the Pharisees, which were the opposite of Jesus' team. Those are who we would pick, but that's the opposite of what Jesus chose. 
And it it makes me think about today where we're at right now. Because if you're sitting in this room and you know Jesus, then you're a disciple. You are called as a disciple of Jesus. So it makes me think about church today. What do we think? What's our A-team? What do we think the mold is for an A-team? The people that we want sitting in our seats at a church to make it successful. And, And honestly, I think we fall a lot of times into the same traps. Not only just thinking about it, but we think about this for ourselves. Well, to be really useful for God in a church, I need to have more. I need to have money, because ministry costs money, and I need to know the Bible way better. I need to have gone to seminary or Bible college or something like that. I need to. I need to be able to serve more. I need to be able to do more. I need to be able to fit this mold of being this person in order for this to be a successful church. I think we as a church sometimes create that mold. And here's the thing. The mold for the disciples, there wasn't one. If you look at their lives, there was nothing that made them fit any type of mold that we would have created. Here's the mold they fit into. Jesus called these common men who were uneducated, who were foolish, who talked too much, who did crazy things. And they walked with Jesus, and they studied under Jesus, and they heard Jesus teach, and they learned from Jesus, and they laughed with him, and they cried with him. They shared meals with him. And here's the deal. These men began to fit the mold that Jesus wanted them to, and that was to be like him. These common, uneducated, unlearned men, the mold Jesus was trying to form them into wasn't one that society would have created. It was just that he wanted them to be like him. He wanted them to walk with him and learn from him and act like him so that when he left, they would continue in that. And that's the same thing. It's dangerous for us today because a lot of times we sell ourselves short. We don't understand that there is no mold that God is looking for. And we think there is. And so it's dangerous because what it does is it creates church attenders. It creates people that sit in the seats every Sunday and feel like they're just good enough to be here sitting in a seat. And that's it. They believe in God's grace and God saved me and he loves me, but he can't use me. Like, I'm one of the people that needed saving, and so now I'm just going to sit in the seat, and that's good enough. That's all Jesus wants from me. And man, the disciples blow that out of the water. But it also creates that in our personal faith. If we buy into the fact that there's a certain mold that we have to fit in order to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, it makes our Christianity look like we're just sitting at the bus stop waiting to get picked up. We're just sitting there trying to be good, just trying to keep to ourselves, waiting for God to either call us home or come back, and we're just going to live out our existence just like that because that's all God wants from me because I don't fit. I don't live up to these certain standards I think we need to live up to in order to be a disciple, to be really used by God. I don't have the talents or the abilities or the money or the skills or the knowledge or the anything that I think I need to do that. And man, thinking that there's a mold like that is dangerous because it causes us to be inactive, to sit in seats and sit and wait for Jesus to come, and that's it. It causes us to believe into a lie that we don't fit the mold, so God can't use me. And man, there is no better example in the Bible of God being able to use anyone than the disciples. Because here's the deal. If you look at the disciples from when Jesus called them, And even through the struggles and failures that they all faced when they argued who was better in the kingdom and were so worried about stuff that didn't matter, when they had all their struggles around Jesus, these are the very men that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, these were the men that were standing before Jesus. When Jesus spoke the Great Commission that we talk about on Sundays and we say, go, make disciples, and these were the men that heard it straight from the mouth of Jesus. 
These were the men that Jesus invested in to send out and to start Christianity and to start the church, which you and I are sitting in and a part of this morning, all these years later. These are the men like Peter who became bold and and brave and courageous in the gospel. God took some of his brashness and his boldness that he used for other things and he filtered it into Peter being more like Jesus and preaching the gospel and being a cornerstone of the church here on this earth to the point where he was himself crucified for preaching God so much. Most of the disciples met that fate as well. You've got Matthew, the tax collector, who is friends with publicans and sinners who God inspires to write one of the gospels that we talk from and preach from and read from and learn so much about Jesus from. You've got John, who is the beloved disciple, who writes the book of John, and then first, second, and third John, and then Revelation. John, who is caught up and gets a vision of what's going to happen to us one day. He's the one that gets to proclaim the message to you and I through God's word that one day Jesus is coming back and we're going to get to rule and reign with him for all of eternity. That's what Jesus did with those guys. Imagine what he could do with you and I. That's what makes me so excited because here's the deal. Look around this room. Does this look like the A-team? And I don't mean any offense by that, but seriously, I'm standing first in line. If I was standing before the Sanhedrin like Peter and John, they would be like uneducated common man. They would say the same things. That guy's foolish. There's no way in the world Jesus would have wasted his time on him. We're sitting in a room full of people with shortcomings and and failures and pasts and all kinds of baggage and all these things. That is exactly who Jesus desires to use. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been. God can use you. There is no mold. The mold is be like Jesus. One of my favorite verses in scripture, Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. If we tried to build this church on our own by the molds and the, and the stereotypes and the things that we thought God needed, this thing would be in vain. That's why I love looking at across this room and seeing a room full of what I think Jesus would have chosen as his disciples. And here's the newsflash. He did choose you as his disciple. That's what lets me know that God is building this church. And here's the thing. The disciples didn't have to worry Because of this. When God chooses the disciples, here's why. Because it raises the question, why? Well, why would God choose me? Why did God choose them? What's the purpose? What is it really all about? And here's why. God chooses his disciples for his glory. I want you guys to look. We're going to read together 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. It's going to be on the screen. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom for God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chooses each and every one of us for his glory. When we're weak, he's incredibly strong. When we're foolish, he's incredibly wise. 
When we're nothing, he becomes something in the minds and in the eyes of people that don't know who he is. Because they will look at you and I as we carry out this mission that God has called us to as his disciples. And they will go, there's no way God would use somebody like that. If what I hear about God being all righteous and all powerful and almighty and all this stuff is true, why would he pick them? Because God uses people like you and I who are nobodies, who are foolish, who are weak because then he gets all the glory. I love the end of that. Let the one who boasts, if you're going to boast, man, boast the Lord. Praise the name of Jesus for using sinful, foolish, faulted people like you and I to bring himself glory. And even more, the beautiful thing, John 14, 26, Jesus walked with the disciples. The reason the disciples were able to perform miracles and do the things that they did and walk with Jesus is because they were with Jesus. So some of us are sitting in the room going, well, Jesus isn't here anymore. He's not walking wrapped up in the flesh on this earth anymore. That's not true, John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Man, when Jesus left, he says, I'm sending, God's sending somebody. He's sending the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that has the same power I have, that has the same power that raised me from the dead, that defeated sin, hell, death, and the grave. That's in you. And then the disciples, these flawed men, go out with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they preach the Pentecost, and 3,000 are saved, and they start a movement of Christianity that stretches now thousands of years and lands you and I where we're at. And here's the deal. If you're sitting in this room and you are a believer in Jesus, then you are a disciple and you have the same Holy Spirit inside of you that the disciples did. We have a a tendency to take characters out of the Bible and to put them on a pedestal and think they're these great people and these great men who are great character and great... and, And some of these guys were. I'm not trying to... But they were like you and I. They were flawed. The difference in their life, the reason they're mentioned is not because of them, it's because of Jesus. Because when we read a story of the disciples, we don't go, man, Peter was so awesome. We go, man, God was so good to use a guy like Peter. And that should in turn turn us around to go, God is so good to use a guy like me. God is so powerful to use a guy like me. God is so strong to use a guy like me. God is so wise to use a guy like me who's so foolish. God is something to use a nothing like me. And if you're sitting in this room and you are a disciple of Jesus, that is why we go and do the mission with confidence. Because we are disciples called by God himself. He chose you and I to fulfill this mission, not because of what we brought to the table, but because of how good our God is. You guys can bow your heads. And if you're sitting in this room and and you came into church this morning and this is a first time at church for you or you're new to this whole thing when it comes to God and you came in thinking, yeah, I'll go to church this morning. That's all well and good. There's no way God wants me. There's no way God's gonna use me. There's no way God cares about me. He doesn't know my past. He doesn't know my flaws. I don't fit the mold. I've seen churches and I've seen how people I think are supposed to act and I don't think I live up to that at all. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians. We serve this God that is our sanctification, that is our righteousness, that is our redemption. Here's how that works. Jesus came and lived a perfect life on this planet because you and I couldn't. We were enemies of God, Ephesians 2 says. 
He came and lived this perfect life on this planet so that he could pay on the cross for your sins and mine, not just the ones in the past, the ones you will commit today, and then the ones you will commit in the future. He suffered a brutal death on the cross, never defending himself because he knew why he was here. He knew your name and he knew your faults and he came anyway. He went to the cross with eyes wide open knowing all of our failures. That is the God that is standing before you, crying out to you right now saying, I want you to be my disciple. There are plenty of us in this room that can identify with the disciples he called. The struggles, the shortcomings, the failures. But man, that's who God called. So if you're sitting in a room and that's you, man, and you want to walk out of this room knowing that you're called as a disciple of God, you are loved by God, man, there's no magic words to say, but it's as simple as crying out to God and praying something like this. First of all, it's just admitting. It's admitting that you're sinful. It's admitting you're flawed. It's admitting you're a failure and that you can do nothing about it. Even in your best efforts, you can never be good enough. Man, then it's believing. It's believing, God, you did send your son Jesus. You are who you say you are. I believe your son Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I believe that that was enough. I believe when you say in 1 Corinthians that you are my redemption, you are my righteousness and you are what I need, that's true. Man, that's just crying out and asking God, God, be my leader. God, make me your disciple. The mold I'm supposed to fit is not the mold this world tells me I have to fit. The mold I'm supposed to fit is just to be like you. Make me like you. I'm going to surrender my life to you. And if you're sitting in this room and you are a disciple, you are a follower of Jesus, then let's never live in a lie that there's a mold we have to fit and that if we don't, we're just supposed to sit here and wait it out. All throughout Scripture, God used flawed men and women over and over and over again. Not because of them, but because it brings Him all the glory. I mean, let's live our lives in light of that. That we don't have to take the pressure of being good enough. We just get to live in light of God loving us enough to use us for His glory. God, we love you so much. God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us on the cross. God, the fact that you would call us as your disciples, God, it doesn't make any sense. None of us would make the A-team, God. But God, that's exactly who you desire to use. You desire to use us for your glory. God, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.